There are professing Christians today who claim that we should unhook or uncouple the New Testament from its moorings in the Old, that the Hebrew Bible is no longer relevant to our Christian life today. In this exciting, expiring, and challenging lecture, Dr. Jeremy Painter absolutely deconstructs that idea and says that in order to fully understand even what the New Testament writers are communicating, a deep knowledge of their Old Testament milieu is important and adds context and depth of meaning to the story that the Gospel writers and the Epistle writers are sharing with us. Taking as his example Luke, who gave us the Luke-Acts corpus, Dr. Painter shows that the reality of the Hebrew Bible from which Luke is drawing helped to inform everything that the early first century church knew about how the gospel was a completion and an expansion of the covenant that God had formed with humans through the Old Testament. You'll be challenged by this lecture. Your Bible reading will be encouraged and strengthened, and your faith will soar as you see just how intentional the Holy Spirit was as he inspired the authors of the New Testament to not cancel out God's faithful covenant of the old covenant, but he incorporated it into the reality of the new. Thank you for joining us, friend, at Arlington United. Let's get into it. something off I haven't tried, tried ever to combine into one session. Um, broadly speaking, I'd like to speak on the biblical imagination, the biblical imagination. And particularly, very specifically, I want to start with the early church's way of reading the Old Testament. So the early church's process and method of reading and applying scripture. And uh, my, first, uh, my first text is Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. I want to spend a little bit of time in Luke, and then I'm going to, uh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in Mark's Gospel after Luke. And so I'm not going in anything like canonical order at this point. Uh, but we'll go Luke and then Mark. And then I'd like to go into uh, Romans chapter 3. And finally, uh, go into John's gospel chapter 1. Hey. All right, so we've got a lot, a lot of places to go here. And um, let's start with 
All right, I'm beginning with verse 13. That very day, two of them, that is, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? What things? Um, there's a little bit of humor right there. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, for God and all the people, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning when they did not find his body. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking now, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And I'm underlining in my mind the word all, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is not necessary, or was it not necessary, rather, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Fascinating. Uh, so the climax of this text, at least thus far, Moses and the prophets, that would encompass the, entire, um, the entirety of what we know as the Old Testament. Of course, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kevi'im, or Ketuvim, the, the, these encompass the prophets, the Torah, and the writings. Uh, but this was shorthand for all the Old Testament, for all of the sacred writings, all of the prophetic texts, etc. Uh, Moses himself being the preeminent prophet. Um, so Jesus essentially is going from uh, Genesis to Malachi, so to speak, to show that it was necessary that the anointed one of God was supposed to suffer the things that the disciples had just described. They thought it was a uh, uh, sort of a, a fork in the road of God's plan. It went uh, uh, awry, or they had labeled the wrong one, the Christ. Something had gone wrong, but in fact, what Jesus is trying to show them is that this was the plan all along, and in fact, this was always in what we would call the Old Testament. This is the church's Bible. This was in the Bible. All right. So I just want to I want to spend a few minutes on Luke's exegesis of the Old Testament, his his biblical imagination. It's absolutely astounding. All right. 
so I'll go back to, uh, let's go back to Luke chapter 1. What may end up happening here is I might, may end up getting carried away with Luke, and we never end up getting to the other three texts. That could very well happen. Um, but Luke is absolutely fascinating. Luke chapter 1, I'm not going to read from these texts, but rather just allude to them. After Luke's prologue, he launches into the story, and he doesn't begin with Jesus per se, or the parents of Jesus, but he begins with the parents of John the Baptist. And it's very important that you, that you um, understand uh, Luke's, uh, the emphasis that Luke puts upon the Old Testament. Now, Matthew is very explicit with this. He'll say, this happened that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Very rarely does Luke ever do that. Very rarely. The narrator, uh, I can only think of a couple of occasions in Luke and Acts in which the narrator will step in and show the audience, or rather, tell the audience. Luke is more in the business of showing. And so you have to be very careful to read some of the subtleties. Now, I want to begin with the name of John the Baptist's father. It's Zechariah, or Zechariah. Zechariah is a highly significant name for the early church because it is the name, it is also the name of two important Old Testament prophets, Zechariah. Now, this Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, he is chosen by uh, essentially lots to go into the temple and offer incense because uh, uh, it's, 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 turn, it's his turn. Now, oddly enough, this is very curious, uh, Luke's gospel begins, the narrative begins with casting of lots or drawing lots, and Acts begins, the narrative begins with the casting of lots for the, the new disciple that's gonna replace Judas. Isn't that odd? I've never really discovered why Luke wanted to begin both of his narratives that way, but it's a commonality. Surely there's some kind of meaning that I'll understand one of these days. But I just wanted to take that little pit stop right there. All right, so Zechariah goes into the temple. And uh, you know when you walk into a room, it, it's dark. And uh, you, you can't see anything. You can't hear anything. But there's something that tells you you're not alone in this room. Somebody else is in here. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the volume of the air is different. It's been displaced. And your, your, your ears can pick that up somehow. Your inner ear. I don't know what it is. But uh, uh, Zechariah has that moment. Walks into the, into the holy place. And there at the right side of the altar is a very, I would assume, large presence. It's the Archangel Gabriel. Uh, there's a little bit of light, light from the menorah that would shine. These, these candles that are representative of the seraphim. And can you imagine uh, uh, that being what you see? It's Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is the angel of prophecy. In the Old Testament, when Gabriel shows up, prophecy is going to happen. He is uh, an instrument of the Holy Spirit to inform the prophets, particularly Daniel, 
he features very prominently in Daniel. Okay, so Gabriel and prophecy are commonly associated in the ancient Jewish mind. And here is Gabriel. His name means my God is, or I'm God's warrior or God is the mighty warrior. And he's standing there at the, at the, at the altar and uh, the, the, the angel prophesies. He says, you're, you're going to have a son. Now, this is all very Old Testament. Because we have an old man and an old man is married to an old woman who is barren. This is very familiar, of course, from the patriarchal narratives. <clears throat> and uh, uh, Zechariah asks a very reasonable question. What? How do I know? Um, I'm, I'm old. She's old. And the angel seems to get offended by this. You're wanting proof from me. Um, now, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Stands in the presence of God. No one sits in the presence of God. You stand in the presence of God. Only God sits. All right. And, but I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And for this cause, for your doubt, you are going to be mute for nine months. Okay? You know this story. He comes out of the temple. He's mute. He can't talk. And then the nine months go by. And he, he, there's a discussion about the name of the boy. And his, he's, he's, he's going to write down the name John, which nobody in the family has that name. And, and, and so people question him. And then what does Zechariah do? He bursts out in prophecy. His first words end up being prophecy. But really, his first word is John. And then prophecy. That's very, very important. That sequence is really, really important for Luke. And here's why. Zechariah, in the Old Testament was one of the writing prophets. We call him sometimes the minor prophet, one of the minor prophets. But he stands at the very end of the biblical canon. Now, he's not the last book of the Christian camp, of the old Christian Old Testament canon, but he's of the last generation of canonical prophets. He's at the end of a long line of God speaking from Moses all the way to this prophet, all the way here to the end. After Zechariah's generation goes away, there will no longer be any biblical prophet to speak. There's going to be the so-called silence of heaven, a 400-year intertestinal period. Now, I just gave that little, a little bit of that background right there, put that together now with the story of Zechariah in the New Testament, and you start to see, oh, my goodness. Look what Luke has done under the inspiration of the Spirit. All right, I, I said that there were two Zechariahs in the Old Testament. There's also a Zechariah who's a non-writing prophet. He is killed at the temple stairs. Um, and uh, uh, for the author of the book of Second Chronicles, this is the end of Israelite history as he knew it. This, is, this comes at the end. So that name Zechariah is always associated with the end of biblical prophecy. And now we have a figure who goes into the temple, meets with that, with that angel of prophecy, and his name is Zechariah, and he comes out and can't speak. 
What do you suppose the implication is? In some way, shape, or form, his muteness is represented, or is representing, the 400 years of silence, heaven's silence. And then he begins to speak after he writes the name John, and he prophesies, and here's what happened. Heaven has opened up again. Biblical prophecy is beginning again with the name John. John is the greatest of the prophets. You see, it comes after that silence. See, look what Luke has done here. Look what Luke, informed by the Spirit, has done. He's understood Jesus' story as nested in Israel's story. Perfectly and intimately intertwined so that somehow, someway, God has arranged it that the last prophets would be Zechariah and that the first prophet of the New Testament would be Zechariah, or rather, he would give birth to John, who is the first prophet of the New Testament. Now, my seminary professor, one of them told me, uh, he asked the question, who's the last Old Testament prophet? And, and I said something like Malachi. He said, no. He said, no, 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 no. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. I still don't know if he's right about that or not, but uh, I'll go along with him a little bit. But look at that very ingenious way of interconnecting the New Testament back with the Old Testament. Fascinating. Well, Luke's not done. He's got even more incredible things to do right there in the early narrative. Now we go over to the narrative of Jesus' nativity. And he's going to tell it all in a very Old Testament way again. Um, Mary, she has this encounter with the archangel Gabriel again, the, the angel of prophecy. And she has similar questions to Zechariah's, but somehow she doesn't get the tongue lashing and the, and, 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 and the muteness for nine months, whatever the case. Um, and so what does, what does Mary do after the Annunciation? She immediately goes into the hill country. This is what Luke says. Now watch this. Let's go back in time a thousand years before Mary. And David wants the Ark of the Covenant to come to Jerusalem. He wants to bring it from, uh, he wants to bring it from uh, uh, Shiloh to the new capital city. And he devises a new method, or somebody did, to carry the ark. It's going to be on a wagon this time. It's not going to be carried by the priests. It'll be maybe steadied by the priests, but not carried by the priests. And they're going to bring the ark of the covenant on the, on, on the cart. And they get into the hill country of Judea. And the ark begins to become unsteady on the cart, and a man reaches out and dies for having touched the ark. All right. Now, the, the ark of the covenant then uh, gets unloaded, presumably correctly, and put into the, uh, the dwelling place of Obed-Edom, there in the hill country, and it stays for three months. And then the ark is brought all the way to Jerusalem, finally, 
carried this time by the priests. And when it arrives, along the way, David, this text says, and there are a couple of different accounts of it uh, in Kings and Chronicles, a couple of different texts. And the texts say that he would leap with joy and he shouted, opened his voice and shouted. Okay? So he leaps and shouts. Mikkel uh, has a problem with him dancing around like that. She presumes him to be a fool. All right. All right, so that's a thousand years before. Now go back to this moment. Mary has received the word of the prophet angel. You'll be, uh, uh, you'll conceive uh, the son of the Most High. So she's carrying the presence of God with her in her womb. And she goes into the hill country of Judea, Luke says. Oh, oh, I see. I know what you're up to here, Luke, if you're paying attention. Let's see how this, how this gets executed along the way. So she's in that same place that the Ark of the Covenant was carried. And then she gets to her cousin's house. The Levitess, Elizabeth, now Zechariah's wife. Now together, Zechariah and Elizabeth, their names mean God. Names mean God remembers His promise. All right, just put those two names together, and that makes that beautiful sentence right there. And Mary, pregnant with the presence of God, comes to Elizabeth's house. The priestess. Remember how the priests were involved in the Ark of the Covenant comes into the priestess's house. And as she steps over the threshold, what happens? The babe within her leaps for joy and Elizabeth shouts using the same two words that had been ascribed and attributed to David's actions when the Ark of the Covenant finally arrived. Oh, by the way, the text also tells us that Mary was not touched by any man. Right. Unlike the Ark of the Covenant. That's right. What is the implication? She's the Ark of the Covenant. Carrying the very presence of God into the land. And those who are sensitive leap for joy and they shout. Praise my goodness, my goodness. And see, you, you, you don't see that unless you're paying careful attention. See, Luke knows the Old Testament really, really well. And he, he went around and he, he got the stories from the eyewitnesses about the story of Mary and the story of Zechariah. All right, but he's hearing the name Zechariah. And, 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 and at some point, I imagine he consulted Mary as one of the eyewitnesses. Remember, the story that Luke tells of the nativity is told from Mary's perspective. Matthew's told from Joseph's perspective. We're not told what angel came to Joseph, but it's an angel that goes to Joseph. And that story, the nativity there, is told from Joseph's point of view, and, and, and Matthew's trying to do something very different there. Matthew's trying to, trying to essentially say, Jesus is the new walking embodiment of Israel. Israel as Israel should have been. Right. 
So every one of Israel's great temptations, Jesus faces. All right, the temptation in the wilderness is a refutation of each of Israel's uh, 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 instances of fallenness. And, and he gets it right where they got it wrong. And his name is jo Jesus, adopted father's name is Joseph. And Joseph, it's not an angel appearing to Joseph. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. Well, didn't we hear in the Old Testament that there was a Joseph who had dreams? And he went into Egypt. And Joseph gets a dream first of, of Mary being pregnant with the Son of God, but then he gets the, the dream that, 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 that Herod's going to come after him. And so he takes the child to safety in Egypt. Oh my goodness, it, it's, it's incredible, it's incredible uh, how, how, how Matthew pulled, look what Matthew understood about the Old Testament. Alright, so Luke has this nativity story, but this time it's from Mary's point of view. Alright, and, 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 and uh, he surely consulted Mary. Yeah, remember, in, in chapter 1, first few verses, he said that he consulted the eyewitnesses. All right, and, and so imagine Luke writing. He's taking notes. He's an investigative historian, uh, kind of in the mold of Thucydides and Herodotus, the ancient Greek historians. And he's trying to be very careful. He's matching sources against each other to find out which one has more veracity. So he does that all along the way. But he hears Mary, one of the eyewitnesses, say, well, after the angel departed, I decided I needed to go talk to my older cousin. Maybe they, they grew up together. By the way, isn't it odd that Mary is, Mary's cousin is Elizabeth, a Levite. So Joseph is of, of the lineage of David the lineage of Judah and Mary seems to be of the lineage of Levi he's king and priest together if, it, if indeed that is the case nevertheless Mary says I went into the hill country of Judea where my, my, my cousin lives and when I walked across the threshold she shouted out for joy and she said, the baby in me is leaping. He writes all this down. Now you can just take this down and then just tell the story. Or, very sensitized to the Old Testament narrative, you're making sure to tell the story in such a way that you're leaving breadcrumbs so that we can understand exactly what's happening beneath the text. The, the first church, the early church, had such profound understanding of the Old Testament that it informed their very imagination. They couldn't just let the name Zechariah go. It was significant of something. But what does it mean? You hear all kinds of people have crazy ideas about what this Old Testament text says. You know, especially when you get to, into Ezekiel and Daniel. You've got, you know... Ukraine is, the, is this beast, and, and, and Russia is this beast, and, and you've got all kinds of things going on. But the biblical imagination of the early church is keen, and here's the point. 
the early church read the Old Testament through a Christological hymn of lens. They understood the Old Testament Christologically, that is, through the lens of Christ and Calvary. Um, so every event they're looking at in the Old Testament, they're sifting through and seeing, is Christ evident on this page? Does he emerge? Was he foreshadowed in some way on this page? And sure enough, they end up finding out so very often that Moses and the prophets had indeed said not only where the Messiah was to be born and how he would live, but also how he would die and then rise again. I mean, imagine you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you're reading the Old Testament after you've seen Calvary and after you've seen the resurrection and after the Holy Ghost has been poured out and it's now your responsibility to tell this story. Imagine opening up the book of Genesis and you notice there in the story of Joseph, he's put into a pit and there's a brother who gets him out of the pit and sells him for silver. What was his name? Judah. The Greek rendering of Judas. This is happening all the time. Oh, we thought we knew this book. We didn't know this book at all. It's a brand new book now when you see it through the lens of Calvary. This is how the, 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 the church needs to read scripture. Through the lens of Calvary and the resurrection. There's no other right way for a Christian to read it. I mean, at least interpret it and apply it. It's Christ on every page. And Jesus started with Moses, that's Genesis 1, and went all the way through to the end and said, the Christ must need suffer and then be raised into his glory. In other words, Jesus on every page. Amen. But Luke's not done. He does this kind of thing almost on every page. I'm going to skip over everything and go back to our text. Luke 24. This might be the most subtle of all of those instances of reading the Old Testament Christocentrically. But here it is. All right. We read how Jesus has been crucified in three days. Two disciples, one of them seems to be Jesus' maternal uncle, Clopas. Uh, and another unnamed disciple are walking on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And here, one thing I do love, one other thing that I love about Luke is He's, 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 very, he's very good at this. Now, you're going to see just how, how carefully this particular narrative lays perfectly atop an, another Old Testament narrative. But Luke is careful not to, not to write allegorically. Okay, so the word Emmaus, he could have chosen, if he were just inventing this and trying to use allegory, 
make things fit he could have chosen and would have chosen a much more likely village for the disciples to be going to but historically he had a historical fact and he's not going to mess around with it he's not trying to tell an allegory he's trying to say the Old Testament was in anticipation of Christ Jesus is the new Israel so so here here's here's what he says the, the disciples are upset. And when you're really upset, you don't want to talk too much. They're walking probably silently. And then a few words every now and then. You can tell, though, that they're cast down, downtrodden. And then there's a, somebody walking on the road alongside them, maybe just a little bit back or maybe a few steps forward, but he overhears. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, well, what's going on? What, what's, what's, what has you down? And the disciples say, what? are you the only person living under a rock? Have you been living under a rock all these days? There's only one thing. There was a crucifixion. And ironically, they're talking to the only person who does know what happened. Um, now, uh, then Jesus walks with them, but they don't recognize him. It's very important for the story that they're blinded. And then he explains them to them the Old Testament that Christ must suffer. All right, now let's pause. Some 700 years or so before, this particular event, uh, give or take a century. There was the prophet Elisha. And he was the secret weapon of the northern kingdom. Uh, the great equalizer. The other surrounding nations had chariots and horses, battalions, phalanxes. They had everything. Israel had one thing. They had the prophet. Just one. And the Aramean army is carrying off raids, incursions, sorties into Israelite territory, the northern kingdom's territory. <laughs> and um, it had been profitable at one time, but now every time they show up, nobody's in the village they're going to try and plunder, and nothing's been left. So they're showing up sneaking into the, into the night, trying to carry off all this plunder, and nothing's there. And this keeps on happening night after night. And so the king is getting frustrated about this, and finally he says, I know what happened. And he calls his generals together and says, you, one of you is a spy. Uh, who is it? And one of the generals speaks up and says, hmm, that's not what's happened here. You see, there's a man who lives in the Israelite, one of the Israelite villages, and he's a prophet, and he knows even things that are whispered in your bedchamber, King. All right, let's find the man, arrest him. I want all of our efforts concentrated on taking away Israel's one defense. 
And so they dispatch, he dispatches an army, and the army shows up and surrounds the hill upon which Elisha is living. The, the servant goes out, stretches, yawns, looks at the sunshine, and then, oh my goodness, chariots and horses everywhere, and the banner of the Aramean army. It's over. It was a good run. We had a good time. I guess I better go back in and warn Elisha, say your prayers. He goes back in and we're surrounded. It's over. And calmly the prophet Go back out there again and look. He goes back out there and looks and he sees, oh, in fact, the army that surrounds the prophet is surrounded by another army, the hosts of heaven. They're the ones in trouble, not us. His eyes are opened. Then the story's not over. It gets even funnier. Elisha goes down to the Aramean army, goes up to one of the generals, and says, what are you folks doing here? And he said, and, 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 and the Lord blinded their eyes so that they could not recognize anything that was going on. And the, 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 king, the, the general says, we're looking for Elisha, the prophet. Can you tell us where he is? Elisha says, oh, I know exactly where you can find him. Follow me. So it's this really humorous moment where they all, this whole army starts following Elisha along a seven-mile journey into the nation's capital, into the teeth of the standing army of Israel. So for seven miles or so, they walk into Samaria right into a trap, looking for the very man who's serving as their tour guide. All right, now, I, I forgot to mention, the, the scripture says that, that these were chariots of fire. All right, the hosts of heaven all around. All right, that's an important little detail for Luke's story later on. All right, so... I get, I get little chill bumps when I get to this part of the story. It's just, mm. They get to the Samaritan capital and the, the armies of Israel now surround the Aramean army. And the, the king of Israel says to the prophet, Father, shall we destroy them? says, no, should, we should not kill those whom God has delivered into our hands. Give them something to eat. Let them sit down, and when they're done, they can go back to their master. Now, Elisha was, was, was a, an ogre in the imagination of the Arameans before. Imagine what he's going to be now when all of these people go back to their king and say, look, you'll never believe what happened to us. Maybe that's part of uh, Elisha's plan for them to respect the prophecy and the prophet. Well, now, their eyes, the eyes of the Aramean army are suddenly opened and they see the danger they're in. 
and they nervously eat their food and get up with their tail between their legs and walk back to Syria where they came from. Now, when we get to Luke 24, you've read this story. Here comes Jesus next to the travelers. And they're looking for Jesus. And the very man they're looking for is the man who's giving them a kind of tour guide. But this tour guide is not to Samaria. It's to the Moses and the prophets. He's taking them on a tour through the Old Testament to show what was really happening all along. So the very man they're looking for is the man who's leading them on the path. And then they finally get to their destination. They say, would you stay with us a while and eat? And Jesus sits down with them and he takes the bread and he breaks it. He blesses it. He gives it to the disciples and they eat their meal and their eyes are opened and they suddenly see and Jesus vanishes out of their sight and they're left with that lingering aroma of the Christ they knew. same story. Their eyes are opened at the meal. And there was chariots of fires, fire in the vicinity. And here the disciples are talking about their, something in their hearts burning within them. The word burn, what is it significant of? The Apostle Paul mentions in a, kind of a casual statement, it seems like it seems a little bit off the cuff, but um, it, it's, of course, intentional, but he says, he says, it's better to marry than to burn. And, and he seems to mean, it, and Paul doesn't talk about hell, by the way. Um, I know this is coming from left field. We were talking about the Gospels. Now we're in Paul. But it's instructive, I think. Paul doesn't talk about hell. That's other, other voices of the New Testament talk about hell, not Paul. And it doesn't seem that Paul has hellfire in mind there when he says it's better to marry than to burn. He, he's referring to people having a passion and a hunger and a thirst that can't be quenched. And the disciples seem to be using that term in the same exact way. Did not our hearts burn with us along the way? In other words, what they're trying to say is, we were hearing the Old Testament, but we thought there was no way that this could come to pass. That the desire that the Old Testament created could not be fulfilled. Right. It was a promise that couldn't be kept. That's the Old Testament. That's what has them slow apart. That's what has them downcast on the road to Emmaus. Jesus died. And the Old Testament seems to have been an empty promise all along. And so essentially... The road to Emmaus is the Old Testament. They had been reading this Old Testament and the, Jesus was on every page, but they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. They were blind to it, like the Aramean army that's walking with Elisha. 
And like the disciples walking with Jesus, they're walking with the very one. But they don't see him. They don't recognize him. But then, when they sit down to a meal and the bread is broken, the broken bread is symbolic of the broken body of Christ. The Eucharist. Communion. The, 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 the sacrifice of Christ. This is my body broken for you. And once they, once they take of that, the Old Testament's a completely different book. Oh, Jesus in Genesis 1, Jesus in Genesis 2, Jesus in Genesis 3, Jesus in Exodus, Jesus in Leviticus, Jesus in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Brothers, sisters, this book that we have, this Old Testament that we have, it's falling out of use in the church. Mm. Yes, it is. Mm. We're becoming biblically illiterate, especially in the Old Testament. And if we lose this knowledge, imagine how much thinner the New Testament's going to be. It's going to be very difficult for us to understand and value the things that the apostles valued. We, we, we um, in the United Pentecostal Church, we want to be apostolic. But sometimes it seems that we're losing out of knowledge on the apostles' Bible. Um, there's a phenomenon uh, in, in language that's really alarmingly and unsettlingly parallel to what's happening with biblical knowledge. Um, there's a, a, a writer, and it, I know his name is Brent Strawn. I can't remember his background, but I, he was the first one to propose this idea, and I thought about it a lot. The idea is, in, in linguistics, when a dominant culture invades a weaker culture. The native people of the weaker culture now need to learn the language of the dominant culture, but they also hold on to their native tongue. But here's what happens. As a result of them trying to learn that dominant language, they develop a pigeon, a pigeon form of that dominant language. So. Pidgin languages are not very complex. They're mostly made up of basic nouns and verbs. Oftentimes the, the verbs are not conjugated. The nouns are not cased. Definite articles and indefinite articles are left out. It's a very basic form of that dominant culture's language. And it's combined with some of the native language. <clears throat> but then the next generation comes the native population gives birth to another generation who grow up as children hearing the dominant language and their, their parents' pigeon. And out of the pigeon of their parents and the dominant language, they create a combined new third language and that's called a Creole. So you go from dominant language to pigeon to Creole. And the Creole has all the syntax more sophisticated grammar and syntax that we're used to in linguistics. We have noun cases, we have conjugations of verbs, we have articles, indefinite articles, etc., etc. 
but it's a completely different language from the dominant language. So that the Creole language only has a faint echo of the dominant language. All right, here's why this is important. This same phenomenon in linguistics is also unfolding before our eyes in biblical terms, in biblical knowledge in our culture. At one time, the dominant language of American people was the Bible. Oftentimes, more specifically, King James. All right, so you could make a, an illusion like the apple of somebody's eye. And not only did you know what that meant, but you knew that that came from the Old Testament. You understood all of this, all of these idioms. You understood the colloquialisms. A lot of our language was built upon Old Testament biblical knowledge. Right. But another culture, a more secularist culture comes along. And the dominant culture uh, it, it, it begins to recede a little bit in the home. And this generation begins to speak a pigeon form of what was once a dominant language, a language that everyone knew fluently. And so you get bits and pieces of biblical scattered in there like salt and pepper, but it's not really the biblical meat anymore. Right? And then a Creole comes along, another generation comes along, and not only, not, now you don't just have picking and choosing of biblical scriptures, but you have a completely different Bible now. Meaning, this is how you end up, this is how you end up with crazy doctrines. This is how you end up with a, with a, 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 a Bible and a Christianity that's perfectly at home in the language of the therapeutic and psychology pop psychology, self-help, so that Christianity becomes, and the Bible becomes, little more than motivational speaking. That's the Creole. And guess what? When you listen to the pigeon, you can say, oh, that's a broken form of an earlier, more dominant language. And it points you kind of back to that dominant language. But the Creole just sounds like a normal language. And so you get into it and you think, that's what it actually says. That's what the dominant culture meant. So, in American culture, in the early 20th century, lots of biblical knowledge. Even if you didn't call yourself a devout Christian, you had all the language. You understood context and text, biblically. But then in the middle of the 20th century, and a little bit later, uh, you end up with a kind of pigeon form people are, there's part of the Bible we don't really like, but we like these parts over here. And so we, we preach on these. And we miss out on the whole counsel of God, by the way, yes, which right. is Genesis to Revelation. Yes. Amen. Oftentimes, we, we preachers, we can just preach what we're strong in. And guess what? Guess what? We, we miss out on, we don't allow our congregation to have the whole counsel of God, the full counsel of God. Yes. Because we keep on falling into our strengths yes. and don't weak on, uh, work on other areas of, of the biblical text. So how many congregations get to hear Haggai and Zephaniah? How much? What about Zechariah? So that there's a kind of pop whenever they get to Zechariah in the New Testament. Amen. All right. 
And, and, and the real danger is now we have like in the 21st century this real super Christianity that can fit into almost any mold. It's even become very friendly in certain circles in secular ideation. I mean, I, I follow some, I, I have a Twitter account, unfortunately, but it's anonymous. <laughs> I don't want any followers. I just want to, I want to haunt a couple of accounts. One of those accounts I follow is a, is a, is a heresy account. And I, I just, I, you get little clips of sermons that have been preached the last Sunday. The wild stuff is out, that, that's out there. The way we're able to justify and rationalize the most heinous of sins is just alarming. So what's happened is our culture has, we now have a creole of the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's a creole of it. It's a different language used for our purposes. Not biblical purposes. Church, the Bible. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Preach the Bible. Preach the Word. Teach the Word. Instant in season and out of season. Know the Word. Love the Word and cherish the Word. Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Lord, keep me from the sins of presumption. That I may be justified, not in my sight, not in my culture site, but in your sight. Yes, amen. Oh, no. amen. I told you, I told you we'd just end up doing Luke. We missed Mark, we missed Romans, we missed John, we missed Hebrews. I'll say this last. Um, at the age of 25, I was working in a downtown Burger King. Right next to the Seattle Ferry. And it got wild in there. Always unpredictable. Never knew who would walk in or what their mission was. Sometimes it was to eat. Sometimes it was just to cause trouble. Sometimes it was to get warm. And one night, when I'm, when I'm getting everything ready up at the front counter for the evening shift, a gentleman walks in, has a flannel coat on, great big, one of those backpacks is as tall as you are. And then that's just on one side, and on the other side, he has a great big guitar case. And he comes up to the counter, and typically, uh, when it's cold outside, and you're homeless, you need somewhere to sit for a while, and warm up. And so, Usually, in that scenario, you're going to ask for several creamers because you're going to sit for a while. Now, here's what happened. He came up to the counter and he said, uh, I'd like a coffee. It's free refill, refill right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have an unusual request, though. Could I have 30? I just kind of looked at him. 30. 
I supposed to count that out? 30? And I went into the little fridge and there weren't enough creamers in there. And so I went back into the walk-in, opened up a box of creamers, and just kind of spilled them all out there on the counter. We counted out 30 and he scooped them all into his coat. And he had a little cup. And he went and sat down and he drank coffee for a while. And then I went about my duty and I started hearing somebody playing the guitar. And I heard a familiar sound I hadn't heard in so many years. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I went and stood out there by the counter just to listen. And some of the employees came up to me and said, uh, is this appropriate? of church and state, right? <laughs> he stayed till closing and he left. And the next night he came in and did the same thing, one of 30 creamers. And the next night, 30 creamers. And then the, third, the fourth night, 30 creamers. But this time before scooping the creamers all into his coat, we had gotten on a first name basis and he said, Jeremy, standing behind the counter of a fast food restaurant, much to my chagrin. I thought, well, I'm, I'm working here. He said, no, no, Jeremy, that's not what I mean. What do you do for a living? Living without God. Oh, I'm being asked a spiritual question. And I remembered that Jesus loves me and all of that sort of thing. Okay, fellow Christian. Um, and so, well, I'm going to prove to him that I'm the most Christian of all the Christians out there. I out-Christian everybody. I know more than everybody. Nobody's going to challenge me on my Christianity. That's, that's my basic attitude, unfortunately. And, and, and I said, well, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I lead worship in our church. I wear all the hats, all kinds of hats, because we're in a church, small church. And, and sometimes I teach on Sunday morning and I'm getting into youth ministry and, and I, have, I have three children and, and I'm, I bring them to Sunday school. I'm just, I'm going through the list of all my achievements, all of my titles. And he says, that's wonderful. I thought we maybe had a kindred spirit. Tell you what, tell me. I've been saying this over and over again in my mind all day, but I just want to hear the words in somebody else's voice. I want to hear it, not say it. I want to hear it. Tell me, what does John 3.16 say? And I thought, oh, I got that one. That's pretty easy. That's the one everybody knows. Okay, I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He 
said, well, back up. I said, one more time. Back, back. I know you didn't finish, but I want you to start over again. For God so. And he stops me on so. Wait a minute. Do you know how much of eternity is contained in that two-letter word? So. It's bigger than all the heavens and the earth. So. He gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish. And I, I was looking at him, and he, I saw him starting to close his eyes. And he lifted up his heads, his head, and his hands. And his eyes began to flutter a little bit, like he was taking a shower, a hot shower, after being cold and dirty all day long. Something was washing him clean. Gave his only begotten son. He was in pure ecstasy. And I wondered in the back of my mind if I was Nell, who had said these words so casually, the most Christian of all the Christians. When was the last time those words washed me clean? And I halted, faltered through the rest of it. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish. And then he's nodding his head, but have everlasting life. And he just sort of, out of a reverie, said, oh, don't stop. Keep going. John 3.17. Oh my goodness. And I tried to King James my way through it. I said, oh, he said, Jeremy, Jeremy, you're a teacher of children. You lead worship. But these words are written in red and they are the very molten core of the universe. If this is true, nothing else matters. Amen. Amen. If, if God so loves us, what could we ever fear in this whole universe? Amen. This means that God, he didn't, when he sent his son, he didn't, he, he didn't, he closes his eyes like this, he said, he didn't sell off one of heaven's properties or one of its mansions to buy our salvation. He didn't purchase it with a cosmos or with a galaxy, with a constellation. He didn't purchase it with a star. He, he bankrupted heaven. He sold everything. He gave heaven. He gave all of heaven. And he spared nothing. For God so loved the world. You know, Jeremy, we live in the greatest of all possible universes. Imagine one that is governed and piloted by a God like that. There 
there's nothing to fear. You must know this, and it must be on the tip of your tongue. And please finish the rest of it. And I said, I can't. And he said, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. smiled at me and he said rejoice evermore rejoice evermore rejoice with exceeding great joy rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice and he counted and then he enumerated all the verses with the word joy in it and then he went I went back into the office and I cried a little bit. I had been severely chastened. And I had thought, well, first I thought he was being very hard on me. Who knows John 3.17? And is that a requirement? But that wasn't really the point. See, he had purposely juxtaposed the verse that everybody knows with a verse nobody knows right. to find out where I was and how serious this message was to me. Are you a teacher of Israel? And I have to explain these things to you. Oh. I determined. I heard his words ringing in my mind. What do you do for a living? This is what he meant. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word. Emphasis on every. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what you do for your living. And I've determined in my mind in that office, this is what I'm going to do for a living. I'm going to, I'm going to meditate upon it day and night. I'm going to delight in the law of the Lord. Well, the night was over. The customers went home. I cleaned up the broiler. I filtered the fryers. I counted the tills. My last duty of the night. Put the mop bucket in the mop. And I rolled that mop bucket out to the dining room. And I saw for the first time that he had pushed all of the tables in the dining room together in one place in the center. And with the empty creamers, 120 of them, he wrote in great big words. Jeremy, Jesus loves you. This you know. For the Bible tells you so. You know, the book of Hebrews says that we have entertained angels. I never saw him again. But I got my calling that night. And I'd like to share this calling with every man and woman of God. Love this and cherish this. With all of your heart. This is what we do. What a God we serve. How rich is his word. How wonderful 
are his ways, how thoughtful and intentional are his communications with us, and how he mightily used the writers of the New Testament to bring into fruition our understanding of the gospel by incorporating the understanding that God had placed throughout human history up to that time of the Incarnation. What a story. What an author. What a God we serve. Thank you, friend, for joining us for this second installment of the Arlington Bible Conference, an annual event in which Arlington United gifts to our community lectures and sermons which elevate the Word of God and bring to bear the gospel message in the context of our contemporary culture. I hope that you'll take advantage of the first installment, which is a sermon on grace. I hope that you'll also listen to the last installment, which encapsulates an idea of Christ and culture. Thank you, friend, for joining us, and God bless you.